I bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every good path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In this broadcast, we shall be discussing the fourth of the foundational doctrines or foundational truth of the Christian faith. And that is the doctrine of or teaching on the laying on of hands. So far, we've discussed repentance from dead works, where we were challenged to turn away from doing those works that lead to death and turn to doing good works, the works that are initiated by God, the works that God has at hand in, the work that is approved by God. And then we went on to discuss faith towards God and challenged us to make sure that our faith is in God and not in anybody, not in a church, not in a man, but in God himself. And we spoke about the killers of faith, doubt, unbelief, fear, science, over the word of God, and so on and so forth. And then we discussed the doctrine of, or the teachings on baptisms, where we spoke about four baptisms, the baptism into the body, the baptism in the Holy Ghost, the baptism with fire, and water or Christian baptism. Now, we go to the fourth of the foundational truth, and we shall be discussing the fundamentals of laying on of hands. Let's look at the scriptures very quickly. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And we are looking at the doctrine of laying on of hands. In Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16, I'll be reading verse 20 to 22. It says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Speaking about Aaron here, the high priest. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, the epistle or the letter to the Hebrews was written to the Jews who had become Christians, but who were still caught up in Judaism. And Leviticus is one of the principal books of Judaism, and the book of Hebrews explains Leviticus and helps us to understand the applicable parts of Leviticus to Christian living. So it's important to understand that in discussing the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, the author of Hebrews by the Spirit of God sought to let the Jews understand that certain aspects of their doctrine did not agree with the Christian doctrine and that when you look at the Christian doctrine you will see that yes there may be similarities because theirs was basically a model and the Christian doctrine the substance the real deal so that we must leave the real deal for example if you were to go to any major construction site you'll have the model of that construction site maybe in the engineer's office so that you can see what it will look like but you cannot live in that model that model is just there to show you what the real deal will look like when it is completed. And so Leviticus is like showing you what the real deal will be like when it is completed. And so here, the Bible tells us, according to the Jewish religious rites, 
where they laid hands on people. But in this particular instance that we just read, the chief priest would lay his hands on a goat. Actually, there were two goats for the Day of Atonement. The first one was actually killed and his blood was used in atoning for the sins of the people as the priest entered into the Holy of Holies, which was once in a year. Then when he had come out, he would now place his hands on the head of the second goat, which was known as the scapegoat or the escape goat, the goat that would escape. In doing that, what he did was he transferred his sins and the sins of the entire nation on that goat and they sent the goat to an uninhabited land and left it there to wander away, having taken away the sins of the nation. And that was the similitude of how the Lord Jesus Christ was described when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the people that he was speaking to understood it. Now, with this little explanation, we come to understanding a little bit of laying on of hands. The writer of Hebrews was trying to tell the Jews that, look, this is not the laying on of hands like your priests used to do. This is something else. This is the real deal. But speaking about what the import of laying on of hands is, let's try and define what it is for the New Testament believer. So what is laying on of hands for the New Testament believer? It is the transference of spiritual benefits on a person by the laying on of hands. In Judaism, they could transfer blessings on people also by laying hands on them, but they also transferred their sins on the goat when they did that. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writing to Timothy said, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. He was telling him that gifts were imparted on you, upon you, when hands were laid on you. These are part of the spiritual benefits that come to people when hands are laid on them. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes again, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So when hands are laid on, gifts, spiritual benefits are put upon those people by transference from the one laying hands on them to the person upon whom hands are laid. It is also the invocation of spiritual blessings or benefits in the name of God as hands are laid on the individual. So usually when hands are laid, sometimes a pronouncement is made. That pronouncement is made in the name of the Lord, invoking the authority of God to perform that conduct upon the person on whom hands are laid. Now, in laying on of hands, sometimes one person could lay hands on an individual or a group of ministers could lay hands on an individual. Where you have a group of people laying hands on an individual, usually it will be during the time of consecration or ordination or even imparting spiritual gifts on a person. Now, spiritual benefits would include the pronouncement of blessings, healing, spiritual gifts, or Holy Spirit baptism. Usually, Holy Spirit baptism and impartation of spiritual gifts are one and the same. Because when people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Ghost come upon them, and that's the baptism, so that they can be able to serve God acceptably and do His work. Now, this is important that we lay this foundation properly. A lot of people have been going about laying hands and doing all kinds of things, and we need to correct this. So why should we teach the laying on of hands? One, 
it is so that it is not abused. Laying of hands can be abused and it has actually been abused. So it is something that we must get to the root of to understand what it is all about. I have seen images of people who say they are ministers of the gospel, say they are pastors surrounding presidents, world leaders, and laying their hands on him and making prayers and so on and so forth. That is an abuse of laying of hands. Because when hands are to be laid on people, usually it should be by the direction of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that we should do casually. In Acts chapter 9, after Saul of Tarsus had had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, he was struck to the ground and he was told to go into a particular place and wait and had become blinded by the brightness of the light. The Lord Jesus Christ called one Ananias and sent him to go to lay his hands on Saul. So let's read that bit. Acts chapter 9 verse 11 and 12. So the Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So there's the laying on of hands. And it was instructed by the Lord. So Ananias did not do it just because he wanted to do it. He was instructed to do it. If you go to verse 17 and 18, that's what exactly Ananias did. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, that is on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So hands are to be laid at the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. The second reason why we are looking at this doctrine is because there are wrong notions that need to be corrected regarding the laying on of hands. Some people think they can receive anything by getting or letting an individual who says he or she is a prophet lay hands on them. Some people believe that they can be made rich by going to somebody who says he's a prophet and say, lay hands on me so that I can have money. Sometimes they even give money to these people and beg them to lay hands on them. That is a very, very wrong notion concerning the laying on of hands. So some other people think that regardless of their lifestyle, once hands are laid on them, everything will be okay. They will be blessed. That's not true. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, the Bible makes a very important statement for all to be mindful of, to be careful of. It says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Do not lay hands hastily. What does it mean? He's saying there that do not be quick to want to lay hands on somebody. You need to find out who you are laying hands on. It's not just to lay hands on people, except the Lord is directing you to. And he said, don't go and be a partaker or don't go and share in other people's sins. Don't go and lay hands on a sinner and say you are pronouncing a blessing upon that sinner. Otherwise, you have become a partaker in the sins of that man. So we have to be very, very careful. There's also the question of who can lay hands on you or who should lay hands on you. John chapter 3, verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So unless somebody has been given authority from heaven to lay hands on you, what you have is just zero. And you might end up with a spirit 
that is not supposed to be in your life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So, there is nobody that can give an impartation of the Spirit on any other person, except he be given and authorized from heaven so to do. So, we must be very careful about who lays hands on us. We're going to look at that in some detail. But for now, we want to spend some time looking at a particular story in the Old Testament and be able to relay it to what we are discussing in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 27. I'm going to read from verse 1. It's a rather lengthy passage, but let's read it. Now it came to pass, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, get them for me. And he went and got them, and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And he put the skins of the kids of the goat on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hand. So he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. He said, Bring it near to me and I will eat my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine. And he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. 
and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came and I have blessed him and indeed he shall be blessed. Let's pause there. We're going to discuss 34 later as we read on. So here you have a classic example of transference of blessings. Isaac had received a blessing from Abraham. Abraham had received the covenant blessing from God. And you recall in Genesis 12, God had told him, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Abraham had transferred that blessing to Isaac. It was now time for Isaac to transfer that same blessing to the next generation, to Esau precisely. That's whom he wanted to bless. Now, something had happened before this time. Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob for a morsel of bread. But nobody knew it was a transaction between Esau and Jacob. However, while Isaac was speaking to Esau and telling Esau to go and hunt game and bring for him so that he can eat and from the bottom of his heart pronounce the blessing upon him and transfer the blessing to Esau and Esau will be blessed forever. Rebecca happened to hear. Now I want you to understand how God works. Rebecca happened to hear what was happening and told Jacob and said, quickly, go and bring the flock from the herd that you're attending and I will prepare food the way your father likes it. And then you present it and your father will bless you. I have heard him, he wants to bless Esau, but you are going to get that blessing. So Jacob said, I am smooth skin. My brother is hairy. They will find me out. She said, don't worry, go and do what I said you should do. She took Esau's garment, put upon Jacob, and then used the skin from the animal that was killed to cover his hands and his neck, any part that was going to be exposed that would be smooth. Now, when Jacob now presented the food to Isaac, Isaac became apprehensive because he heard the voice. So he asked the question, how come you have come so quickly? He said, oh, God gave me favor. So I found the animal. Okay, no problem. He said, come close to me. Let me feel you. So he felt him. He said, ah, okay. The skin is like Esau's skin. Okay. Then he ate. And then he was about to bless him. He was about to do the irreversible, the irrevocable blessing was about to come. He said, come near my son. Come and kiss me. Let me smell you. And as he went near, he smelled the apparel of Esau which Jacob was putting on. He said, oh, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord had blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Blessing was pronounced and Jacob left the place. Then Esau came. And said, I've brought food. Bless me. Ah! And Isaac began to tremble because he knew what he had done. He knew that he had blessed the wrong man. And he knew that there was no way he could take back the blessing. So he told him, who is it that came? 
I have blessed that fellow and he is blessed. I can't take it back. Now, let me read verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And I know many people who like to preach about this and say nobody will take your blessing. We will see why the blessing was given in verse 36. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And now look, he has taken away my blessing. You see, Esau thought that by giving the birthright, he wasn't giving the blessing, that he would still get the blessing. He made a very big mistake. He was a profane man who sold everything. The blessing went along with the birthright. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine, I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. That was all he could get. But there was no way he could change the blessing. The point we are trying to make here is that it was not so much the meal that was presented that automatically brought about the blessing. Because I've heard many people talk about when you sow into your father in the Lord's life, he will bless you. There was more at work here. You will notice that Isaac was going blind. In fact, he was blind. And so he could not see. But it did not mean that he did not realize that he was about to release a blessing that was irrevocable. And that once the recipient had received it, he was blessed forever. And so what did Isaac do? Isaac began to ask questions, painstakingly asking questions from Jacob. Who is this person? Oh, it's me. It's me, your son. Eh? Which one? Esau, are you sure? How, how come you came so quickly? Oh, God gave me favor. I see. Bring it close to me so that I could feel the hands. He felt the hands and felt the force. Ah, okay. When he was not about to release, he said, come, come and kiss me. Come and embrace me. And as he embraced him, he felt his neck. He felt, his, ah, this is Esau. He said, but the voice, the voice is Jacob's voice. But every other thing is Esau. And he blessed him. Now, what is the point we are trying to draw out here? The point we are trying to draw, and we are going to find the application. But before I begin to discuss the application, let me just mention something in Hebrews chapter 12 concerning Esau. Hebrews 12. Let me read it from verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. We heard how Esau cried, how Esau wept. But the blessing had gone. You cannot mock God. Esau thought that he could sell his birthright for food and still go and get the blessing. He was badly mistaken. God saw that thing. It was God that made Isaac to bless Jacob. Because all the signs were there for Isaac to see that this is a voice. These other things are clothing. But here the voice is the voice of Jacob. It is the same thing with you and I. We are blessed when hands are laid upon us, not because of us, 
because we still have our voice. But because we have the clothing of Christ, because we have put on Christ, that is why the blessing can be upon us. So God looks at us and says, bless him. Why? Because I see Christ. He smells like Christ. So let's look at the application of this story to the New Testament believer. Number one, do not be quick to lay hands on people, particularly for the purpose of consecration, ordination, or imparting spiritual gifts. Don't be quick to do that. In Acts chapter 8, from verse 5 to 23, we read the story of Philip going to Samaria and preaching and souls were saved. Then we read about one man, Simon the sorcerer or Simon the magician, who was considered a great man in those days until Philip came and proved that he was a fraud. This man gave his life to Christ. He was water baptized. But nobody had been able to speak in tongues and nobody had received the Holy Ghost at the time. So the apostles, hearing what had happened in Samaria, traveled to Samaria to lay hands on people so they can receive spiritual benefits, the spiritual gifts. They can receive the Holy Spirit, baptism. And as they were laying hands on people, this Simon the sorcerer who had been born again, been water baptized, the Bible says he continued with Philip, who probably had continued to learn one or two things in Christendom, now saw that by the laying on of the apostles' hands, people were receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. He now went to them and offered them and said, please, sir, take money. Please give me this gift so that when I lay hands on other people, they too can be speaking in tongues. There can be changes in their lives. They too can receive the spiritual gift. And Peter said to him, your money perish with you. He was saying, you don't know what is in your heart. There is a gall of bitterness and of wickedness in your heart. You better go to God and sort yourself out. And that's what the Hebrews is telling us here. It says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. In verse 16 it says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. So you must check the people. You just don't lay hands, especially for consecration purposes. You don't lay hands suddenly on anybody. Don't be too quick to lay hands on people for consecration, for ordination. No! You need to find out things about these people. It is sad that we are also engrossed with social media today. When we were younger believers, pastors visited people's homes. If you were a worker in the church, your pastor will visit your home. Today, people want to know when pastor is coming. Maybe you are busy beating somebody, abusing somebody, he will just pop in. He will check you out. Then he will go and say, this one is not ready yet. But today, we don't even know anybody. Yet, we are laying hands on people. And we are consecrating and ordaining people. I've heard of people who were ordained as pastors or assistant pastors who are still smoking Indian hemp, who are still engaging in fornication or adultery, who are doing all kinds of crazy things. But hands have been laid on them. The man who laid hands on them has become a partaker of the sins of those because he has encouraged them to continue in the sin, letting them feel that they are okay doing those things. The second thing we want to learn from this story, because we are still discussing the wrong notions governing the laying on of hands. The second thing we want to note here is that you have to be led by the Holy Spirit before you lay hands on people. Don't be too quick to lay hands on people. In Mark chapter 16, when the Lord Jesus Christ was leaving, he told his disciples that those who believe will be empowered they will be able to cast out demons, among other things. And they will lay hands on the sick and the sick shall recover. Not the difference. You don't lay hands on a demon possessed. You cast out the demon. But you lay hands on a sick person and he will recover. Allow the Spirit of God to lead you, to direct you before you start laying hands on people. Don't be quick to do that. I see many people saying they are doing deliverance and they are laying hands on people for deliverance. I don't know what you are doing laying hands on somebody for deliverance. If indeed the fellow is demon-possessed, what are you laying your hands on the person for? The Bible says, cast out the demon. It didn't say lay hands on him. But the fellow that is sick, lay hands on that person. He will recover. 
The third thing we want to note, drawing from the story of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob, is that you must exercise due diligence. Do everything you need to do before you lay hands for consecration, for ordination, for impartation of spiritual gifts. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I read from verse 1. It says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. These are things you must find out about these people before you start ordaining them as bishops or pastors or whatever. It's not something you find out overnight. It takes time. You must work with them, be close to them, visit them at home, know them in the place of work. I heard once somebody went to visit one of their ministers in his office. When they got there and they said, we want to see pastor so-and-so, the receptionist voiced aloud, is that man a pastor? And she said it in a sarcastic manner that it sent home the point that you mean that kind of a man is a pastor. You need to find out what they are doing in their place of work. You must observe due diligence. In verse 4 it says, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Today we see children of pastors misbehaving all over the place. I'm not talking adults, I'm talking of teenage children. They dress lewdly and nobody is able to control them. Nobody can talk to them. And yet that man is a pastor. Verse 5. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Very brilliant question. If you cannot govern your home, is it the church of God that you want to govern? Not a novice. You don't see somebody who has become, just because he's speaking in tongues, he's, you see him, he's fervent and everything, suddenly you go and ordain him. He must go through the grind. Let him face life's challenges. Let us see how he handles life's challenges. And God will do those things. It's not something you will learn in five years. Sometimes ten years, you are still learning who that person is. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. You ordain somebody who is a young believer as a pastor. He becomes puffed up and then he starts doing things that don't make sense. And you are wondering, what is going on here? I thought this guy was a diligent brother. He wasn't. He was fervent, yes. But he had not been tested. He had not been proven in verse 7. He says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he must have a good testimony of people who are outside of the church, outside of the body, unbelievers. It doesn't have to be that they'll say, oh, he's a fantastic one. No, they'll say, he's too churchious. Now, that is a good testimony. But when they say, oh, this one, ah, we like him. In fact, he laughs at our jokes and he cracks jokes with us. And you know that that's a poor testimony. So you must maintain due diligence. If you read further down verse 8, he talks of deacons. He said, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, so on and so forth. Many other things. Go ahead and read them. And you begin to see that what we are doing in many of our churches today is a joke. We are laying hands on people who have not been proven, who have not been tested. I don't know why the hurry to lay hands on them. Let's read further. You will see something that says about deacons. In verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons. The one you make them, let them serve first. Being found blameless. Let test them. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So you must test. You must observe due diligence before you lay hands on people. 
Then the fourth thing we want to note about the application of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob and the blessing is that there are qualifications for laying on of hands on anyone for consecration, impartation of spiritual gifts. The qualification, the major thing is that that person must be in conformity with Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Bible says that those whom God did predestine, he did predestine that they would be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And in Romans 12, 2, the Bible says that we should not be conformed to this world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God, of course, so that we're able to prove that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So unless the conformity with Christ takes place by reason of a transformation away from the world, to lay hands on such a person is to be a partaker of the sins of that person. So we must observe due diligence. Seek the face of God before you start laying hands on anybody, particularly for consecration, ordination, or spiritual impartation. The third reason why we are studying this is so that you don't go about submitting your head to just anyone to lay hands on you. Some people just go everywhere and then they go and submit their heads and this man will lay hands on them. The other man will lay hands on them. The next man will lay hands on them. And you're wondering, what are they doing? Number one, there must be a relationship between you and the person who is laying hands on you. For example, your biological father who is a Christian can lay hands on you and bless you. Your pastor can lay hands on you and bless you. You have a relationship because it's your spiritual authority as it were. But for you to go to another church where nobody knows you and you go and join a queue and say they are laying hands, what are you doing? Do you know who that person is? You must have a relationship, an ongoing relationship with the person that you are asking to lay hands on you. You need to know the person, which is the second thing. The person must have spiritual authority. He must be led by the Spirit of God. Remember that there is a transference when hands are laid. Test for fruit. Don't be moved by leaves. Leaves are, oh, the man laid hands on somebody and the fellow jumped up and began to walk. Those are leaves. Test for fruit in Matthew chapter 7 from verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. You won't know they are false prophets, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. There are many people, just listen to their sermons, you will know. Look at their lifestyle, you will know by their fruit, not by their gifts, but by their fruit. Verse 5 and 6 says, they are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. When you see the world following those people, be careful. These are the fruits. That fruit is telling you that this is a worldly man. People are streaming after him. His worldliness. He doesn't correct them in any way, in any shape or form. For him, everything goes. In verse 6, it says, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There are people teaching error. And people are going to them and they are laying hands on them. And transferring such error upon them. Be careful who is laying hands on you. Finally, you must be willing to submit 
to the one that is laying hands on you. If you are not ready to submit to the person, don't allow him to lay hands on you. In other words, you don't go to a church and you see them laying hands and you say, I want them to lay hands on me. No. Are you a part of that church? Are you a member of that church? Have you submitted yourself to the minister in charge of that church? Are you being led by the Spirit of God to go there? So be careful. So we've defined what laying of hands is. It is transferring spiritual blessings upon the one upon whom hands are laid. It is invoking the blessings of God in the name of God. It goes without saying, therefore, that God must be the one authorizing the laying on of hands because he's the one who is giving you the authority and the substance that you are imparting on someone else. And then we've seen why we have to look at these things. These are the fundamentals. Why are we looking at it? So that it is not abused. A lot of people are abusing it, especially when politicians are looking for votes. They will tender their heads for anybody. And the people, the group of people are surrounding them and they are happy. They say, oh, 50 pastors pray for this man. He will still fail. If he's not of God, he is still not going to be there. You can pray for him 2,000 times. It doesn't mean anything. Secondly, there are wrong notions that must be corrected. And we are correcting them by the grace of God. People think that people can just lay hands on you and you have money. They lay hands on you and you get elected. They lay hands on you and you become the CEO. It doesn't work that way. And then some other people think that once the hands are laid on them, they will get a blessing. Even though they are living contrary to God, it doesn't work that way. And then, of course, you have to be careful. Who is laying hands on you? Who have you submitted yourself to lay hands on you? Be careful. Let there be due diligence. Observe. Search. Who is this person at home? Who is he in the office? Some people are masquerades. In church, they look like they are holy. But once they leave church, they take off the mask. And then they completely different set of people. So before you ordain people, you must check who they are in and out. It should be a rigorous process. Otherwise, we're going to end up what we now have in the church of God. Finally, another reason why we're teaching this is so that you don't go around submitting your head for people, packing all kinds of negative spirits into your life. And you are wondering what is going on. Because it is not so much what is giving you, but the spirit that is operating in him that is coming upon you. A friend of mine said once that he went out on a healing line and somebody came and laid hands on him. And he said from the moment hands were laid on him that day, he began to feel randy. Something that he that never, ah, he was wondering what was going on. As he spoke to God, God told him that, did I ask you to go and submit your head to that fellow? You must check who is laying hands on you. He learned the hard way, prayed and fasted for days before that spirit left him. So be careful. Let there be relationship between you and the person. Your pastor, yes. But some other person, why? What is he laying hands on you for? And I don't know the pension that ministers have. They want to lay hands on somebody. Quickly, they want to lay hands. Why do you pension for laying hands on hands? Over people that you don't know. I can understand laying hands on a sick person. Yes, he's sick. He needs to be prayed for. You can lay hands on him. Sometimes you don't have to lay hands on him. We've, we've read in the Bible where handkerchiefs were taken from the body of Paul and placed on people and people recovered. And when you say you have a pastor, test the fruit, test for fruit, test for fruit. I cannot emphasize it enough. Test for fruit. And you must also be sure that you are ready to submit to the person that you are asking to lay hands on you. You can't be going all over the place. You must stay in one place. Next week, by the grace of God, we should be able to conclude on laying our hands. Until then, God bless you. <music>